situation where you got into a discussion or a debate with someone and you quickly realized that you were in deep trouble, that you were overmatched, that you were outwitted, that you were in way over your head. So you started to talk to them a little bit about gardening without realizing that this person used to have their own landscaping company. Or you start to talk to them about planes because you've got some kind of an interest in planes before you realize that this person was a pilot in the military and the things that you only dream of are things that they have done. You've been in that situation, right? Where you found yourself overmatched quickly. Well, much more than simple pride in a particular conversation is on the line when these various leadership groups come to confront Jesus. I hope that you caught this in the reading today from the book of Proverbs, from Proverbs chapter 9 that we read earlier. But Proverbs 9 describes for us a battle of wits between wisdom and folly. Now, it would seem at a quick glance that, well, certainly wisdom is going to win that one hands down. And yet the battle is real, and folly is a difficult enemy. You can look at this later, and for that matter, you can look at it now. But what you will see in that passage is that both wisdom and folly are inviting to a feast. They've set up a feast, and they say the exact same thing to people. To those who are simple, come on in here and eat. Both of them are calling the same thing. They're using the same type of food. Well, so it seems, but in reality, one is stolen food. And so here at the end of Jesus' life, we see this playing out. We see the incarnation of wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ and the incarnation of folly in those who are coming against him. At the, uh, on your bulletin today, on the front of it, there's this verse from Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom is resting upon Jesus. And the passage that we used for our uh, assurance of forgiveness today said that he has become for us wisdom. Wisdom from God is who Jesus is for us. And now he sits, wisdom sits in the temple, dispensing wisdom, and folly incarnate approaches up to wisdom, doubting Jesus, doubting his authority, challenging his wisdom, questioning the word of God. But when folly comes up to Jesus, folly does not come up with a sign that says, just so everybody's aware, we're folly. Folly doesn't wear a jersey that says on the back of it, folly, or says on the front, folly, with a little symbol like that. Folly comes dressed up and looking good. Long robes, respectable people who have respectable seats in respectable places and have respectable friends that they hang out with. Folly looks good. As 
Elizabeth Bennett said, one has got all the goodness and the other all the appearance of it. And that's what's happening here in this Luke section with Jesus at the temple. Now, I trust that you realize that I chose a very large text for us today, and what that means, as it always means, and that will be the case several times here at the end of Luke, is that I'm not going to go into detail. I'm not going to look at every single one of these, uh, of, of these incidents or these, these interactions and try and unpack all of them. We'll look at some of them, but I really want to look at what's happening here and then a little bit of the detail in terms of how Jesus is responding to each one. So we're going to look at it this way. Folly's punches, wisdom's counter, and wisdom's triumph. So first of all, folly's punches. Folly is no pushover. Folly is no light enemy. Folly is a tough competitor. Folly is willing to try anything. It'll try the frontal attack, which is kind of the beginning of Luke chapter 20, where they come up to Jesus and say very clearly, very upfront, whose authority have you got here? Who is allowing you to be in this place? What gives you the right? That's a frontal attack. They try then a covert attack in our passage. They're afraid of the people, and so they send in spies. And maybe we could think of it this way. With the Sadducees, you try a side attack. Because the Sadducees are going to come in and they're going to be upholding the law of God. This is what the law of God says, all the while denying things like the resurrection. Folly flatters, it deceives, it tries to get us into traps, it tries to get us into theological conundrums, moral dilemmas, and leave us right there. Folly runs a counter tray. I asked Tom Blackburn how many people would get that. I, I figured about three in the congregation. All right, a counter tray. A counter tray is a football play, and I played soccer, but nevertheless, uh, it's a football lineup for how you do a run. So if this is your line in football, we're going this way. This is your offensive line, and you've got your people here. Here's what a counter tray is. A counter tray is where you take a couple of your linemen and you put them on one particular side. So it looks like you're going to run the ball to this side where all of the big guys are, and you're going to run behind the big guys that are right there. You're hoping that the defense will adjust, put its guys over here, and, and you, because here's what you're going to do. You're going to hand the ball off, and your running back is going to fake to go this way where everybody is, and then he's going to turn back this way because what's going to happen is two guys are going to pull out of that line, and they're going to come this way, and the running back's going to go behind them. It's a deception that you're not supposed to be able to defend against. You think that they're going one way, and they shift, and they go the other way. This is similar to the approach that they try with Jesus. They think that they've got Jesus in a trap. Remember when they asked about Jesus' authority, Jesus said to them, let me ask you a question. The question that I've got for you is the baptism of John. Did that come from God or from man. Which one? And they, remember, they couldn't answer the question. They couldn't answer the question because they knew if they said it's from God, well, why didn't you listen to him? Or if it's from men, all the people thought it was from God. So they were stuck in a no-answer scenario. And they think they've got Jesus in something similar here when they ask him this question about the tax. So they ask the question about the tax, realizing that if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, 
well, they've got the, the Roman government that they can pull against him because they can say, this guy is stirring up rebels. He's inciting people to rebel against Rome. On the other hand, if Jesus says, pay the tax, he's going to lose the affection of the people. Why? Because the people didn't like Rome. And they were hoping for this king, whom they had just proclaimed Jesus to be, to come in and deliver them from Roman oppression, to liberate them economically and in every way from Rome. So they figure they've got him. They figure they've got him in a place where there's no way that he can give an answer to this question. The Sadducees take a side approach. Ostensibly, they are people who uphold Torah. They uphold the Pentateuch. They uphold the law of God. But they are liberal in their application and interpretation of it, and so fanciful things like resurrections from the dead. Well, nobody really believes that. We believe this law, but nobody really believes in resurrections, and we don't believe in resurrections either. And so they come up with what seems to them, and probably this was some scenario that they had discussed a number of times to assure themselves, yes, the resurrection is really a, just a, a silly idea, a silly concoction that's been thrown together. But they come up with this idea using what's called the law of the leveret, a law that was in place in the Old Testament, not a normal scenario, normal scenario, brothers didn't marry their, other, their brother's wife who had died. But in this scenario, in the case of no children, there was a provision for a marriage so that the name of the deceased brother could be maintained, could be raised up, the law of the leveret. We saw it uh, in Ruth. Uh, and, and if you go back a little bit further, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, that's in play there. You see it in the law of God, and then to go back to Genesis, you see it in Judah and Tamar. Genesis chapter 38, you see the same thing being worked out. So they take this thing through, and they take the absurdity of the situation to show, of, of seven brothers working all the way through a, a, a family, to show what seems to be to them the folly of resurrection belief. Now let's pause and just step back and acknowledge something. The folly is at work in the world right now. You know, we're not, we don't have a scenario exactly like this, but folly is all around us, and you and I know that it is alive and well, and you and I can make no mis mistake and not realize that folly is after us with all of its wiles, all of its promises, its offers of comfort, of ease, of success, of friends, of popularity, of giving you the best places to sit down, of people thinking well of you. Just don't think stupid thoughts of upholding the Word of God, of things like resurrection. But folly is short-sighted. And wisdom's counter reveals and exposes the short-sightedness of folly. Counterpunch, you've got a punch. A punch comes. The counterpunch is the one that goes right over top of the other punch that came in or right underneath. Defending against the counter tray that I described earlier is not easy. But to defend against the counter tray and so many other deception plays in football, you need to stay home. You gotta stay home in your assignments. You cannot get fooled by it. If you get fooled by it, you get run right by. Jesus stays home. Taekwondo, all sorts of sports things are 
uh, fighting things here today. Taekwondo, the idea is the punch comes where the person comes charging and instead of trying to combat force with force, you use force. So if they're coming, you step aside and use force and let that energy that they've created, you push them aside and that's what Jesus is doing here. So I'll, I'll take what you throw and I'll use. I'll use exactly what you throw at me. Jesus sees through the deception. Jesus, verse 23, perceived their craftiness. Eve did not. Jesus perceives their craftiness. His answer regarding the tax silences them. It upholds the legitimacy of government that God has appointed in the world and the necessity of submitting to governing authority while denying that that authority is God's, as Caesar would have claimed to be. While saying God has authority in this world, ultimate authority in this world, and is the one ultimately to whom we must submit. Now, Jesus doesn't say all there is to say about the difficulties of relating with the world in this passage. He doesn't deal with the question, for example, of what do you do when the governing authorities ask you to do something against the law of God. We can go to other places in Scripture and look at those kind of things, the book of Daniel, for example. But what Jesus' answer does is it paves the way for a new conception of the kingdom, a new reality of the kingdom that will be able to exist within kingdoms, within governments all around the world. The construct of the kingdom under the old covenant couldn't have gone all around the world without a militaristic campaign that would have ultimately been unsuccessful. But Jesus now says, I've got a way for a kingdom to exist within a kingdom. That's the way of the new kingdom. And so Jesus' answer paves the way for exactly that to take place. To the Sadducees, when he responds to them, he exposes their ignorance, their presumption that there is no resurrection, or that if there's a resurrection that they're trying to attack, that that resurrection life must be just like the life that we're having right now. And what he says, what Jesus says to them, is that there is a resurrection life for, verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain it. But it is far beyond, this resurrection life is far beyond the straw man resurrection life that you've created in order to make your point. He dismisses that. And he tells of a much more exalted and wonderful resurrection life. Now, some find the answer of Jesus to be troubling or disturbing even uh, in the way that Jesus responds to this. If, if you have an unhappy marriage and you read this passage, you probably go, whew, that's great. The resurrection life will solve this and make this much better. If you have a good marriage, you kind of read this and go, I... I I don't get what I just read right here. Fair enough, fair enough. What Jesus is trying to say is that eternal life, the resurrection life, will be unspeakably good, indescribably good, so much better than you can conceive of it right now. 
And what he's saying is that the communion with God and with the saints of God that you will experience in heaven will be ridiculously greater than the union that you have now between a man and a wife. It won't be worse. It'll be better. It'll be better, and that is what he is saying to them. Jesus then steps onto their turf. To step onto their turf is to step into the Torah, into the Pentateuch, into the book of Exodus that we've been studying together to confirm the resurrection. That there is a resurrection is evident by the story of the burning bush when God declares, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living, for all things live to him. And all that they can say in response, all that the scribes can say in response as they're watching this is, teacher, you have spoken well. You've spoken well. You've taken on all comers and spoken well. Finally, then, wisdom's triumph. Jesus takes the offensive in the passage. He's been responding to questions, sometimes with questions, but he's been responding. And now he says, let me ask you a question. Let's see how well you understand scriptures. And he goes back to the Psalms, and he quotes this particular Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he says, how can David say that? How can the Messiah be David's son, and yet David refers to the Messiah as Lord? Because in a culture like that, the son gives honor to the father. So how can David say that he calls his own son Lord? Now, appreciate what's going on here. <laughs> Jesus is the son of David. He's just been hailed the son of David coming into the city. The blind man just hailed him as the son of David before in Jericho, right as he was coming up to it. So here you have the one who has been being hailed as the son of David, who is in fact the God-man, sitting in front of them and saying, how do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of the incarnation? And he's sitting right there as the God-man, as the thing that answers the very question that he is asking of them. He exposes their ignorance, he exposes their duplicity, their hypocrisy, and he announces their greater condemnation. Did you see that last phrase there in chapter 20? They will receive greater condemnation, levels of condemnation corresponding to responsibility. That is there. They get greater than others. And he gives, at the end, a demonstration of wisdom's triumph. Wisdom doesn't look like flowing robes, best seats. Wisdom looks like a poor widow going to the temple and putting in two copper coins. To the world, that looks like nothing. The world is concerned with big donors. I didn't read this in the paper. Somebody told it to me, so I'm going to assume that it's true. Drexel Law got a grant for, or got a gift, a bequest or something, $50 million. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anyway, good, thank you, uh, this week. The world looks at that. 
That makes the newspaper, 50 million given by somebody to Drexel Law School. That seems significant. And it is in a way. But what Jesus looks at, the measure of wisdom, the triumph of wisdom, is in the integrity of a small person who gets it. A small person who is wise doing something that is good and something that is right. That's the triumph of wisdom, sacrificial service, sacrificial giving. The battle between wisdom and folly goes on. You and I cannot avoid it. You and I cannot run from it. Whether we like it or not, we are engaged in it. In every single decision that you make in your life, you are in a battle. The call of a passage like this is to see it, is to realize it, is to behold wisdom. Behold Jesus, the wisdom of God. Behold folly, choose wisdom. Kids, young people, wake up. Wake up. You are engaged in a battle. Folly wants you to waste your time. Folly wants you to hate church. Folly wants you to daydream during school. Folly wants you to daydream during Sunday school. Folly certainly doesn't want you to listen to sermons. Folly wants you to complain. Where are the dragons in your life to slay? They are not far. The dragon of folly is right in front of you, there to be slain. Wisdom is your kingdom to build. Your parents your church, your pastors, your elders, your Sunday school teachers, the friends who are sitting around you right now. They are laboring to teach you wisdom. Now, some of you kids are not going to understand what I'm saying right now, and that's probably a good thing, but there is the threat, if you lived in Iraq or in Syria, a very imminent threat of the Islamic State and what they might do. Let's say for a moment the Islamic State was here in the U.S. over in King of Prussia right now. And let's say that I weren't giving a talk from Scripture, I wasn't preaching from Scripture. I was standing up here in a military uniform, and I was instructing you, kids, adults, in how we are going to defend ourselves when we are attacked, how we're going to organize what kind of weapons we're going to use, how to clean, shoot, handle a gun. I guarantee you, kids, I would have your rapt attention because you would perceive that this is a real threat, this is a real need, I need to know how to do this. Guess what? Folly's here. Folly is here. You are being, or you're, we're, what we're trying to do, is to equip you to deal with a battle that is in front of you right now. A 
call to listen to the Word of God. Now, two warnings as we close. Warning number one is this. The world doesn't get excited about wisdom and quiet acts of goodness and obedience. It overlooks those things. It says that they're not very important. Jesus doesn't overlook anything. Jesus saw past the big givers. Not that he ignores big givers and not that there shouldn't be big givers, but he looks past the big givers to see what this woman who would otherwise be unnoticed by everybody else is doing, and he appreciates that. He appreciates that small thing, but the world overlooks it. And then the final thing is this. The warning is that wisdom is not easy for fallen people like us. It is for us impossible without Jesus. So be wise and build wisdom on the cornerstone. That's where we left last week. On the cornerstone that it is Christ Jesus. Using the materials that Christ provides himself. The word Jesus is wisdom from God. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's pray together.